Advocate Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Chikumba. My pronouns are he, him, and his. And today I'm joined by my, as usual, amazing co-host and partner in crime, Lisette Trujillo. Hi, everyone. Lisette here. She, her, Aya. I'm so excited to have our good friend on today. Me too, Lisette. This is episode 13. And I'm really looking forward to today's episode, especially for this conversation we're going to have with today's guest. That's right. We have the OG of the parent movement, one of the OGs, Jamie Brizahoff. I was corrected on this. Did I get it right? Okay, I did it. Um, I'm just so excited to have her here. And I learned something new every time. We're not going to edit it because I get names wrong. I'm so looking forward to this show, folks. So welcome once again to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Let's get started. Yay! All right, Lisette, what's good? Did you just get back from another vacation? Girl, I can't even keep up with you. Bring me up to speed. It wasn't really a vacation. Well, it was a vacation, but it wasn't a vacation. It was like, so Daniel was invited to go to the Familia TQLM retreat, youth retreat. They're called GEMS. And it was in Lake Arrowhead, which is like 30 minutes outside of San Bernardino for people who don't know where that's at. So, and I presented uh, for the youth on one day as well. Um, And when I tell you that it was an interesting trip, like people are always saying that Arizona must be really hard and to move to California. When I tell you that we wore our protect trans people tees or like things like that, or my immigrants, my kids of immigrant tees, did I get a lot of dirty looks? I sure did. I felt more uncomfortable there than I do in like Yuma wearing my clothing so I feel like this idea of progressive states being the safe like safe haven not necessarily the case so what it's else? interesting because that's you you think California and you think live free you think you know hippy dippy you think the San Francisco Bay Area you think that people are always super LGBTQ friendly but it sounds like there are pockets where that does not hold true at all I know that there are pockets where that doesn't hold true at all. I hear it from good friends and I hear this not just in California, but from other progressive states where there there are laws intact, but because there are laws, there's an assumption that there's no work to be done. And, you know, this anti-trans rhetoric and sentiment is spreading across the country rapidly. So yeah, I felt kind of unsafe wearing my things. And Jose was like, we're still going to wear them because that's what we packed. And so (laughs) um, we did. We rocked all of our progressive tees and t-shirts and got lots of dirty looks. I was like, please don't spit in my food kind of moments. But it was beautiful and the weather was nice. You know that it's been like 108. Right, right. And it was like 73. So I was like, hey, with some breeze, kind of worked out. Um, what else? I'm headed off to a fundraiser tonight for our Ward One rep, Lane Santa Cruz. Um, excited to see that it's like a queer, fu- like queer community fundraiser. So it'll be great to be with, you know, people that we love and yeah, just working, hanging out. What have you been up to? Man, it's been a whirlwind of activity as usual, but let me see if I can be as succinct as possible today with my update. All right. So first, the Washington Post released a comic strip with different kids and how they came up with their names. So if you remember, we were featured in uh, Soul of a Nation and Hobbs told a story about how he came up with his name and a Washington Post reporter like heard the story and wanted to explore like how kids come up with their names. And so he was one of six kids whose story of how he came up with his name was turned into like a comic strip. And so Hobbs Jacumba, a little six like slide thing where he talks about, you know, he has things that remind him of his brother and his siblings. And he wants to do something that reminded himself of his mother. And she loved Calvin and Hobbes. And so he took the name Hobbes because it was something that allowed him to connect to his mother. And, you know, like, of course that, that breaks my heart. Um, But it's also really, it was really powerful to know that, you know, your children aren't like these just flippant airheads that they actually think deeply, especially when it comes to names, because a lot of times a regular cis person will see a, a person's name and be like, well, why would you call yourself diamond styles? Like, because 
A diamond is something that's formed under a lot of pressure and I'm coming with styles. And so there's a trans person I know with diamond styles. And I don't know that that's the origin of their names, but every person's name has an origin. And as much as outside looking in, you may not think it has meaning. Oftentimes it has deeper meaning than you really know. And this was something that I was just like, damn, son, you, you mad deep. <laughs> you it's so interesting deep. that you say this. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to order a print of this issue and we were watching Guardians of the Galaxy this weekend. And there's a whole scene where like Rocket and his friends named themselves. And Daniel was like, can we pause that this is every young trans kid's experience with their queer friends? And yeah, so we all cried. I cried like such a baby. That's so beautiful. I, I'm going to order it. Yes, I will find it and make sure that you get the right one. Um, okay, so what else? Uh, all right, so I'm going to give you the rundown of each of the children because I realize I just focus on Hobbs. I don't really talk about the rest of the kids. You would only think I have one you got, kid. You got more. <laughs> I got four kids. So starting with Fuji. Fuji made the travel team. Fuji made Hamilton Predators, yeah. U13. He's super excited. Uh, like, truth be told, he's probably going to be better than his big brother because his big brother is training him. Whereas my son, the oldest, had me to train, and I wasn't as good as his brother is training. Needless to say, he's very excited. The two of them are excited. And so that's a great thing to have Fu like focused on something that he's genuinely on his own, independently excited for and is about that business. Like every day he's out in the back kicking the soccer ball. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Hobbs turned 17, got his license, bought a car. Yes, on the road. On the road, like licensed. He saved his money from working he started working got a like a you know work permit because he's under under 18 or 17 or however old it is you have to be to work in new jersey on his own independently got the permit found a job started working saved his money he was like hey can i buy a car i was just like sure you know whatever you want to buy you put up half i'll put up half so if the car is five grand you put up 2500 i put up 2500 he found a 2009 hyundai sonata 38,000 original miles, one owner. That's amazing. Clean car. And now he's tooling around on the road. Like, I'm super proud of this dude. He takes so much initiative. He's like wise beyond his years. So two down, two to go. Chima is going out for the Howard soccer team as a walk-on. After sitting out for two years and getting his academics in order, he's like, yeah, I got the bug. And he's been training for the past few years, it's, I'm scared. I'm scared for the other teams. I'm just going to say this now. I'm very scared for the other teams because he's been training like a maniac. And now he has two cannons. He used to have just a right cannon. He's been training his left foot. Now he has a left and right cannon. And I play with the kids. I used to play with the kids all the time because I was like, I'm the big dude. I'm no longer the big dude. Like my, my kicks are not as strong as either my 13 year old's kicks and certainly not as strong as my 20 year old kicks. So I'm just like, I'll be the goalie. I'll be the goalie. I'm not going to try to kick the jaw no more because I just don't have it like that anymore. And they're showing you up on the field. They're not really showing me love. They're showing me up. That's what I said. Oh, see, I'm hearing positivity from you. And no, you I was like, no. Me up on the field. That's not right. Lisa. You got to be in my corner. You got to be on my side. You got to be on my side. I'm hearing I'm love. You hear they're showing you up. <laughs> You're not even right at all. That's not even how we do. We're we're supposed to be together. The parent advocate. I'm sorry. I just know what's happening. I know what's happening on the field. Yeah. And and my knees aren't the same as they used to be. You know what I mean? <laughs> Everything hurts. Everything hurts. It's total wrong. body lore. I feel it. I know. Anywho. And then um finally, my my oldest, my you know, the apple of my eye, Ashiming, is working at the library. She's working at the Princeton University Library. She has she has this love for libraries. She has a love for libraries. She wants to go and get her master's in like library sciences. Like, could you be a bigger nerd? Could you be a bigger nerd? Bless her heart. And, we need librarians. You know, She's going to be at the forefront. You I'm know saying, I, I'm not, I'm happy for her. Like my little girl is working in a library. Like literally, could you ask for anything more? <laughs> like, <laughs> And now we're gonna we're gonna move away from all those you know those tropes of the librarian. That's not her, okay? 
that's not her. So before you come with the jokes about the librarians, no, sir. No, sir, Bob. Not on my wife. And if she wants I don't to have any jokes. Not, I grew up in the you, 90s. Not you, Lisa. Not Parker you. Posey, party girl, was the librarian of the mall. She was stylish. Exactly. She was cool. That's she probably wasn't as smart as, as Asha just was. A but just a but like beauty, brains, we're here for the librarians. She's beauty and brains, but she's also a nerd. And I'm, you know, whatever. To each his or her respective own. I'm not saying anything about anything outside of this is what she wants to do and good on her. So that is my update. You know, everybody now knows what's happening with the children in the, the Chikumba household. I've done my reporting. I feel that I've given equal time to all of them. And I'm a good father. And they know about your old man knees. They learned about that today. <laughs> I'm just teasing. This is what we're going to end on. Lisette, we have to talk. I think we have to talk. You've been away for too long. You don't know how to have new clothes. Okay. I'm saying. Anywho. Um... How about we get to today's topics? Let's do it. So, Megan Rapino is out here repping in these streets for trans folks. Won't she do it? She literally called bullshit on all these folks out here claiming that they're trying to protect women, but they're not protecting them from pay inequities or sexual assaults at the hands of coaches. Mm-mm. No, Megan Rapino understands the assignment. I got the name right. Understands the assignment and definitely knows the importance of visibility and utilizing her platform. Um, I'm just always so grateful for what she chooses to lend her voice to. And it's always been around trans youth and trans people and, and access to, um, you know, access to sports. And so good on her. I mean, and I love, I love like that she is using the platform that she has to speak out at a time when other people aren't really. And I love the fact that she specifically called out Dave Chappelle. She was like, Dave Chappelle, your jokes get people killed, mm -hmm. period. Not, mm -hmm. I'm not hedging on that. I'm saying the thing because the thing needs to be said. And people may want to dance around you because you're a comedian and comedians should have free license to say whatever the fuck they want. No, the nope. fuck they shouldn't. You know, you can say what you want, and you can get backlash and you have to accept that that backlash comes with the territory. And just because you have one little experience with one trans person who, if you listen to the story that he told, was a person who was in pain, suffering, just because they have the ability to laugh doesn't make what they were going through any less difficult and certainly doesn't give you the ability to suddenly be the authority on why that person unalive themselves. It wasn't because the rest of the community was looking at them and saying, oh, what are you doing is wrong by supporting Dave Chappelle. It was that person has a history of trauma and that caught up with them. And that sometimes happens, Dave. And for you to turn around and say, oh, my goodness. So I was happy that she called him out. And I was happy that there are people like her who are saying the thing that needs to be said. This high professional elite world accomplished award-winning athlete is saying the things that need to be said especially as it regards to you know trans people in sports a woman a professional high-performing elite athlete is saying trans people should be included in sports i vote for inclusion I, I think that's just really powerful and i really appreciate that she did that it's so powerful i'm manifesting her on like a future episode i'm like happen happen but also too can we talk about everyone needs to be like eddie murphy People forget that Eddie Murphy has evolved and like not too long ago was like the jokes I made in the eighties and nineties were homophobic and wrong. And my, my understanding has evolved and my jokes are different. Right. And I'm sorry for the harm I caused. Right. Not that fucking hard. No, it's not hard at all. And more importantly, it is an evolution. Like I have evolved. I was a homophobe. I was a terrible person. I acknowledged that. Once upon a time, things that I was just like, oh, it's just the way things are. No, it's the way I allowed them to be as an individual and didn't mm -hmm. take accountability for my own actions and how my actions and my words and my behavior harmed other people. I can reflect on my youth and, you know, the not so long ago when I wasn't enlightened and be like, that was wrong. That's growth. That's evolution. Yeah. It's not like, oh, I'm going to stay exactly where I am and I'm never going to change. Well, that means you're not growing and you're not developing. You're probably regressing. But 
we could go on and on and I'm not going to because there's other people we can really talk about. So right, bring it. What, what the fuck is happening in Kansas? What is happening in Kansas? The attorney general and the judge who ruled on the attorney general's request must be smoking some crazy shit. And the legislature too, because according to some reading of the statute in Kansas, it doesn't expressly prohibit changing one's name on their license. So the judge preventing people in Kansas from changing the their, their, their names or gender markers on their licenses is just ludicrous and probably illegal. Yes. And there's precedent already. Like they're going to lose this in the courts, which I can't wait, but they know what they're doing. They're causing harm and further making it difficult for trans folks to have access to identity documents or have any sort of privacy and agency in their public life. It's really, really frustrating. I spent a lot of this morning listening to Amara Jones's anti-trans hate machine episodes four and five came out today. And it's always such a sobering reminder that there is a purpose to all of it and it's to effectively erase trans people. And that's, this is where we are. This is why we see it and this is why we're angry. And I think where I'm always even more angry is how people don't connect the dots. Like, why are we not all outraged by this? It's just frustrating. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna push back on one thing that you said because I don't think it's a foregone conclusion that this decision is gonna be overturned by the courts. We can no longer trust that the courts are truly impartial arbiters of the law. They're not. They're not. And and more and more, we're seeing them make decisions that are not rooted in law. They're not rooted in precedent. They're not even rooted in the facts of the particular cases that are coming into them. They're not rooted in procedural, you know, adherence to procedural steps in order for something to be heard on the merit. It's like, it's a free-for-all. This is going all the way up to the Supreme Court. You have Alito and Roberts and Clarence Thomas just making shit up, just pulling it straight out of their assholes and telling us that, oh, this is exactly what the law is supposed to be. I'm like, are you shitting me? The fact that there is a standard that goes back to the historical origins of when a law was written, are you fucking stupid? How are we talking about something has to adhere to a historical standard when the historical standard was people walking around with big hats and shooting muskets. Like, how is that the standard that we're applying when things have changed? Society has changed. There wasn't an internet. So do we have the same laws around written words when we're talking about things that can be created by artificial intelligence? Like the fact that they're not evolving with the times and they're making us go back to a time when I was three-fifths of a person and only white men were able to hold land and vote and we're only the ones who were considered for citizenship like all of these standards that they're talking about applying today based on a historical precedent it 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 boggles my mind so i'm not confident that just because something just smacks of just poor jurisprudence it will get overturned and be righted by subsequent courts because i don't think that i think the precedent that's being set today by the supreme court tells us otherwise No, you're right. I was thinking about a case that was won around driver's licenses in Arkansas last year. Yes. That said, and so, and so I agree. You're right. We're in a different time. And a different state. I have to, I was like, you just took me back to listening to Amara this morning. It's all doom. (laughs) I don't want to be that, (laughs) but I do want to be, I do want to be. You're right. No, it's true. Like we're going to talk about the sixth circuit right now. And that felt like a gut punch on Saturday morning, right? Like so. So speaking of 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 fucked up states, Tennessee's gender affirming care ban went into effect this week. So trans youth in the state are no longer able to get care in that state. And I can't accept how utterly cruel people can be. We are talking about a child's ability to get appropriate medical care. We are talking about a parent's ability to take their child to the doctor. Regardless of what anyone thinks about trans people, these children can no longer get the care that they need and they're being actively harmed by the state. Yeah, yeah. The ruling by the Sixth Circuit, like I just said, I woke up and it just felt like such a punch in the gut. I I was supposed to give a presentation that day. I did give a presentation uh, to youth at the Familia TQLM retreat. Um, And it was about understanding anti-trans legislation and the importance of self-empowerment, 
but it's hard to feel empowered when the state and the country effectively take away your right to ownership of your body, to be able to make appropriate decisions for your body. And they take away your right to privacy and making those decisions. It's a terrifying time. And it, and it's a reminder that we have to keep guard of our rights as we attain them. Right. And I think people are so used to this idea, like that we have to like prove that we deserve the rights that they're actually, that they think that this stripping away of rights is normal. They're like, Oh, well, but then you got to prove it again. And it's, it's not, it's, we've never existed in a world where we're fully free. And I, we can't even truly conceive what that would look like or how we would maneuver in it. What a beautiful space that would be. The so Dobbs you're right. Was really the beginning of this unraveling of rights. And, and mm -hmm. again, people don't appreciate, they're like, life begins at conception. Okay, that's cute and all, but this person has the ability to decide what happens with her body. She previously did, and now she doesn't. And you shouldn't be okay with that. Because even though we're talking about abortion rights, reproductive rights, we are talking about bodily autonomy. We are talking about privacy rights. We are talking about all of these protections that were baked into this constitution that you keep, you know, you're so ready to jump on the second amendment and how these rights are enshrined, but all of the other rights, all of the other amendments to the original constitution, did you hear the word amendment to the constitution? It means it was changed to get to what it is now. And the interpretation of these laws, the interpretation of the constitution are how a lot of the rights that we have, that we formerly had were enshrined in precedent that we now can say, hey, if you do that, precedent says that that's against the law, that's unconstitutional, that violates my rights. Slowly but surely, these things that we have taken for granted, the ability to be free of unreasonable searches and seizures, due process under the law, equal protection under the law. Like all of these things are going away and they're going away for trans people and their families, but they're going away from all of us. All of our rights are being affected and people don't understand that. They're sitting by, they're drinking their Kool-Aid, they're watching the news, they're watching NASCAR, and they're not recognizing that the rights that they have are being eroded away. Well, and the reality is, is that the right understands how to talk about it, right? If you talk about the mutilation and death of babies in the womb or the mutilation of children's bodies, then you get to deflect from what Roe v. Wade actually was, which was the right to privacy and to make decisions for yourself. Nope. Nowhere did it ever say abortion, right? Nope. It said you had the right to privacy to make medical decisions for yourself. Lisette, just stop and it. So just stop it. You know that they can abort a baby up until the nine month. In fact, according to Ron DeSantis, they can abort the baby after it's been born. So, so you tell me, how, what are we doing about that? That's why the Dobbs decision came down because after the baby is born, they can still abort it. Exactly. They know how to talk about it. And we have not been able to connect those dots for people. You know, I had like a long discussion with my dad about Roe v. Wade and what it meant and what privacy meant. And like the 132 cases that rely on that right to privacy that are now in like in danger. Right. And my dad was like, well, why didn't we ever hear about this? Cause they didn't want us to. They didn't why. want us to. And you're not, they looking, didn't want us to. you're not looking for the information in the places where it's available. You live in an echo chamber and everybody around you is in the same echo chamber and you're just sharing bad information and misinformation. I mean, we're not even going to get into like how behind the times our government is with respect to artificial intelligence, like chat GBT and AI and the open AI project and all of what's happening is creating this tsunami of misinformation generated by artificial intelligence that learn from all the bad behavior that cishet white males fed it. And now it's got a mind of its own. This dystopian future that we're thinking of is, is, is here and present. And people are already citing bad data when they want to support an argument that they make. Okay. Uh, I yeah. Don't know why we you just got traveled. me all riled up like this? <laughs> we went. Okay? Up, we went. We went. We went, we went down there. the rabbit hole. But Whew. I know that today's guests will be able to shed some light on the ways we can come together as a community to fight against all these attempts to deprive people of 
bodily autonomy of agency of their voice. So let's get to them. They've heard us banter back and forth, so let's bring Jamie on. Jamie Brizahoff is a nationally known speaker, award-winning LGBTQ plus advocate, and heartfelt writer. Rooted in her queer identity, her experiences raising a transgender child and working with families like hers across the country, and two decades of working with families and youth, Jamie equips leaders to create safer, more inclusive spaces for LGBTQIA people of all ages. Jamie's family and their advocacy work have been featured by media outlets and organizations across the globe. Jamie holds an MA in religion from the Lutheran Theological Seminary at Gettysburg. Her first book, Raising Kids Beyond the Binary, Celebrating God's Transgender and Gender Diverse Children, is available for pre-order wherever books are sold. A New Jeru's resident like me, Jamie lives in New Jersey with her spouse and three kids. Everyone, please welcome Jamie Brizahoff to the show. Yay! Welcome to our show, Jamie. It's truly an honor to have you on our podcast. Yay, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Jamie, when I asked Lisette if we should have you on our show, she texted me back, I love her. Then literally in rapid fire succession, I was going to reach out to her too. Let's see if she could be on this week. Do you have her cell? I can connect us. I was just like, um, uh, chill. I got this. Me and Jamie go way back. It's like the new Jeru's crew. So before we even get started, catch me up. What has life been like for you in your neck of the woods? I don't know. I mean, life is chaos. Like I'm sure it's the same for the two of you. Um, the kids are getting bigger. They do that. I have three uh, kiddos that are not kiddos anymore. They're like big. Rebecca's 16. Um, my boys, Elijah's 14 and Oliver's nine. And I'm just trying to keep up with them. Um, do this advocacy thing and do life and keep up and all the things. I don't even know. I just want to say I'm jelly of this like New Jersey in-state friendship thing. So Steven, you know, you know as I said earlier, I was excited happy. I love it. Yes. <laughs> Stephen and I first connected in DC, which was super fun because we weren't even in New Jersey. But um, yeah, I, I will say there. Rebecca is a big Stephen fan. And so she was super jealous. And she's actually a big Lizette fan too. So like when I was like, I'm going to hang out with them tonight. She was like, what? She was not not thrilled that she wasn't invited. You let her know she will be a future guest on our show because she's doing big things. Like I met her many, many moons ago and to see her growing up and to just blossoming into her own, it's amazing. So now, even though like we do have history and I know you, I don't know you know you. So I was doing some research like to prep for the podcast and I came across this article you wrote for Medium where you you talked about your experience with DCPP. And for those people who are not in New Jersey and who are unfamiliar with that acronym, DCPP is the Department of Child Protection and Permanency. Um, and people don't understand what it's like to be the parent of a child that you are doing the absolute most for. You are parenting like with four gold stars and doing all the things right. And people still question your parenting. What was that experience like to have DCPP knocking on your door and essentially questioning your parenting. Yeah, that was, that was something. And it, what's kind of wild to think about now is like, that was quite a few years ago. I want to say Rebecca was 10 or 11 um, and she's 16 now. And like how much the landscape has changed and how much it hasn't changed at the same time. Um, and so, yeah, we were reported to the equivalent of, you know, CPS, Child Protective Services, our version in New Jersey, um, for for abusing our kid by someone that we had never met, some stranger on the internet saw the work we were doing, and and so these folks showed up at our door and they were like, "Oh, you're forcing your son to be a girl and take all these medications," and we were like, uh, "No, not exactly. Like, here's her legal name change. Here's all the things. Like, we had we had a safe folder. This thing that parents of trans kids." 
for all for as long as I've been in these circles has been told to put together, which is a folder that shows, you know, evidence of your child's identity from a young age, like self portraits and them expressing themselves and then letters from doctors and family friends and people can attest to that you're good parents. And so like, I remember reading about that originally and being like, I'm in New Jersey, I'm never going to need that. And so I had like, had a, I had some stuff put together, but it was not robust. Well, after they showed up at my door, I wasn't there that day. It was just my spouse and my youngest. And like, I got home and he was shook. And so he like went through everything. We compiled all the documents, had all our ducks in a row. And like, honestly, we are surrounded by, you know, white picket fences of privilege. We are in New Jersey. We are um, highly educated. We are white which is super important. We're in a family where um, both of Rebecca's parents were on board with supporting her. And so knowing how hard that was, despite the fact that New Jersey had good policies in place and all of these points of privilege, and that it was still, it was still a matter of watching my young child have to defend who she was to the state of New Jersey. Like, I, I don't even have words for that. It's, it's certainly trauma that lives with us. Like most recently last year, we got a letter from DCPMP and I saw the return address and I was like, what is this? And it was like, uh, uh, my spouse was going to give a recommendation to a foster family, like to endorse them. But I panicked getting that letter like that when people show up at my door that I don't know who they are, that lives in my body still for sure. It's so terrifying. I, I, I too have my safe folder and often I'm like, do I need to like update it? Do I need to, and it's, it's like a horrible thing. Like it's sitting there and I know it's there, but you hope to never use it. I think what's really important about your story is like, not the most important thing, but like Rebecca, the photo of Rebecca that said, I'm the scary trans person you are all talking about. I may be misquoting that sign, but it went viral, right? Where, what was that experience of having something go viral like for you? And like, how did you, how did that inform your, your advocacy and like the responsibility you must have felt to like step into that moment? What was that like? Yeah, so that was in um, 2017 when the federal administration had rescinded the guidance for trans students in schools. And um, I offered to speak at a rally in Jersey City, New Jersey. Um, I reached out to Garden State Equality. I was like, hey, if you need a parent to speak, I'm happy to. And they were like, yeah, you and Rebecca can speak. And I was like, y'all, she's 10. <laughs> but I, I was like, okay. I mean, I'd already been following her lead all this time. I was like, I guess I should ask her. And she was like, yes, I want to speak. And so she made that sign. And that rally was such a pivotal moment for our family because it was the first time Rebecca really used her voice publicly. And it was empowering and important for her to share her story in front of the 200 people gathered in the streets there. But it was also the first time Rebecca heard from people that didn't have the happy story that she had, that had um, didn't have the support, that had led very different lives um, as young people, especially older adults who didn't have support in their homes or schools and even other young people. And that was a big epiphany for her because we had really been able to put a protective bubble around her. And so when I posted that photo and it went viral, she was coming home from school and I was like, uh, Teen Vogue wants an interview, uh, Yahoo News, Huffington Post. And she was like, what is happening? Why does anyone want to hear from me? And at the same time, she had this awareness of what life could be like or what other people were going through. And so she realized suddenly someone put a microphone in front of her face. She had a platform and she knew she had to use it. And so we really followed her lead. Um, and certainly, I mean, it's a really steep learning curve, this whole accidental advocate journey. Like it's not something we ever plan to do, but we saw the impact she was having. We saw that cute little Rebecca with her pink pigtails and her pink puffy coat was making a connection for people that this is just a little girl and moving things from an issue to a human being. And I mean, that's the work we still do today. That's still the work I think all of us are doing, but that was seeing the impact and seeing how powerful it was. We just jumped and then like our, our learning kind of caught up along the way. 
It's so interesting that you say that because, you know, we've been invited to different things to speak and the power of our children's words really can't be overstated. It really is an entirely different thing when you hear people talk about these disembodied people and then you have a trans child in front of you saying, hey, you're talking about me. This is my life. I'm the one who you're saying can't go to the doctor, can't use the bathroom, can't play on sports. I'm the one. Like what really impressed me about Rebecca when I first met her was how I'm going to say mature she was because that's that's the energy. It's not a young person. And and it's 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 like it's hard to say this because our children have to grow up faster than they should. Our children's childhoods are somewhat being taken from them. And again, you, myself, Lisette, our children are in these protective bubbles as you've described. And so they are happy and, and playful and youthful and young. But when they step out of that bubble, they have situational awareness. They know how to talk to adults. They look you in the eye. They have a story to tell. They understand the points that they're trying to hit. And this level of savvy is something that it, it, it makes me proud and it makes me sad at the same time because it shouldn't have to be this way. Absolutely. No, I say that all the time. And even Rebecca at this point, I mean, she's 16. She's going into her junior year of high school. And she's like, I would love to just be a high school kid. I would love to have my biggest concern be the test coming up. I would love. And like we say, hey, if you want to step back, like we will wholly support that. But she she could never step back fully. It's her life. It's her identity. She knows what's going on in the world. So as much as we make the decisions and support her in like moving back from public voice to moving, like stepping forward and all of that, it's always something she carries with her. And also simultaneously, she knows how much privilege she has. She knows that as a white trans girl that fits into this binary box of what people expect to see, she has a responsibility to advocate for dismantling white supremacy and to attack ableism and all of these things because she is benefiting from those systems of power at the same time as they are oppressing her. And it's it's really interesting too because often representatives miss the point. Like we met with uh, Representative Pocan who told us, I met with Rebecca and she's amazing. And so, you know, we were talking privately and Danielle shared the story about how He's a straight A student, but when ledge session comes, his grades fall. And he's like, well, work on those grades. And Daniel's like, I would love to just work on my grades. The thing is, is that I'm being forced to drive two hours multiple times during our 100 day legislative session that like disrupts my ability to go to school because I have to go advocate for my rights. And so it's really interesting to hear even legislators not realize the lived impact of anti-trans legislation when it comes to our children who are stepping into this moment and advocating for themselves. It was like, he even asked me when we saw him at the Equality Caucus, Stephen, he's like, did Daniel get those grades up? And I was like, well, Daniel's grades were only down because again, anti-trans legislation impacting our day, impacting our day-to-day -day life. And so it's just always frustrating that our kids have to keep reminding people that they're, that discrimination and marginalization by our state has a real consequence that they pay the price for. Yeah, and I think the, the pressure to present the perfect little picture of what it looks to be trans in order to be worthy of justice and equity is so problematic. And I mean, I we see that all over and the pressure that puts on our kids while they are navigating all of this, this pressure that comes from dis discrimination and from the world and from the systems of oppression. And then this, this the, they have to make it look good all at the same time, like it is so absurd. And there's a fine line in them wanting to share what they wanna share and keep private what they wanna keep private, but also poking holes in that whenever possible to say that they are whole human beings. They are not, um, I don't know, perfect little trans kids. Like they're whole human beings and there is real struggle and there is real joy and there's real, there's real all the things, the ups and the downs. So th this is a very good segue to 
the book you just wrote. You just wrote a book, Raising Kids Beyond the Binary, which aims to give readers like a really vivid picture of who transgender, non-binary, and gender expansive young people are and, and what they really need to thrive. So I really want to know, first, what inspired you to write this book? And second, what do you hope your readers take away from reading it? Yeah, so when Rebecca transitioned, she was eight years old. And so this was eight years ago and the world was very different there. And like the, that was like, you know, when she went out into the world as Rebecca with the new name and the pronouns. And so the journey started before then. And so as we were looking for resources, one of the things, so we are a family of faith. I am married to a Lutheran pastor. And um, that is something that informs and impacts our journey and our experience of the world for sure, especially in raising a transgender child. And so when we were navigating those early days and years and months, and um, we found some resources, some books on raising gender non-conforming kids. There were not nearly as many as there are now, but there were a few. And we could find like really, um, really complicated, you know, nuanced looks at queer theology that like both my spouse and I have a seminary degree, like we can read that and understand that. But there was nothing that looked at raising these kids from a faith perspective in a positive way that said, you don't have to choose between your faith and your child. You may have to choose between your child and your church, your faith community but you do not have to choose between your faith and your child. And so that was the book that was on my heart. I wanted a resource for those people that are having a hard time reconciling the faith that they've known and that they deeply care about with who their child is. Because all too often, people of faith are doing the loudest and most significant harm to this community personally and politically. Um, and, and we live with that and navigate that. And we feel that the worst hate we get, the biggest threats come from people in the name of Jesus. And so that is just super real. And we wanted a tangible, accessible resource rooted in story, because story is relatable and connecting, but also filled with theology and practical tips and all of the things that um, parents could have and adults who work with youth could be equipped with and faith leaders could have to say, this is the way we do it. And we don't love and support these kids in spite of our faith. We love and support them because of our faith. This is who we are called to be, in my case as a Christian. I love that so much. Um, this is going to lead me to my next question. It, and it's you and I talk a lot about intersectionality. And really, you were one of the few parents who, you know, at the height of the pandemic, when BLM really went into like the forefront of people's consciousness, you were one of the few parents that was like, posting on Facebook, and actually saying Black Lives Matter, vocally, what are three things you want families, white families of trans youth to understand as you begin to share your book with parent communities across the country? What do you want them to know? Because it was for me, I mean, I always knew, but this was this, this, what I was getting like a visual on social media of like families who I was engaging with in advocacy, who had a disjointed viewpoint of uh, trans rights and what the Black Lives Matter movement was trying to do, which was like that they're intersectionally entwined with each other, right? And so what do you want those families to understand if they're listening? Yeah, I think first and foremost, um, as white parents raising transgender kids, we need to understand that some of the newness that comes with raising young people who are at this um, in this flashpoint of oppression, like at, especially at this political moment where it's even worse than it's been in so many ways and that everything we're feeling and everything we're navigating and how heavy that feels um, is, is that which, you know, BIPOC parents and families have been experiencing whether they have trans kids or not for a very long time. 
Like we just joined the party to say, hey, I want to be an advocate and figure out how to dismantle systems of oppression. But people have been doing the work for a lot longer than us. And we got to listen. Like we got to take a step back and listen to the people doing the work and what they know and what they've learned and what's actually needed. Like it is not up to me to say this is what I think the movement needs right now because the movement is about more than me, more than my kid, and certainly more than white people. So that's one thing. I think the other thing is, and this is, um, this is in the book, and I, Lizette, you're, you're in the book too, with your permission, like that liberation isn't possible if it's not collective. I mean, I borrowed your word because um, I don't, I, I mean, people say so many things well, but that has always stuck with me. Um, you talk about tethering our robots together and that that visual, that imagery is is what I share in the book, but that um, we can't fight for our kids, for our white trans kids without also dismantling all of these other systems of oppression and power. It all is rooted in white supremacy and white supremacy and patriarchy. And so like we have to go to the root. Otherwise we're like, We've got holes in our boats and they're filling water and we're just trying to stick them instead of, you know, repairing the whole boat um, or moving to a different one. And so understanding that as you go on this learning journey, you don't have to figure it out all at once. This is not, this is not meant to be some sort of oppression Olympics. I think people get like pushed off from that. But as a white person, you just need to listen and not feel, okay, and so then this would be my third thing. I think we have to really take a deep breath and get in our bodies. We have to feel the things we feel when we mess up. When someone calls us in and says, hey, that thing you said, you didn't do it right. You like, you, you did harm in a way you didn't realize. Um, or you're, you're acting in a silo that is um, preventing us from, from working towards the collective or whatever it is. When we first hear that, especially as white people who have white peopled our way through life and just are used to, you know, just everybody accepting that we're doing all the things right. My gosh, we're so obnoxious. Like when we are corrected, that is the first thing that if we can't own that defensiveness, feel that defensiveness that, you know, as a characteristic of white supremacy culture and, and let that like not stop there, take a breath feel where it is in your body. Like you can't see me, but I'm like rolling my shoulders and my neck because I can feel it when I do that. And just, okay, I feel that. And I don't have to stay there. I can move past it. I can listen. I, it's not that I'm a bad person or that, you know, my kid is bad or that I can't do any of this work. It doesn't mean all of those things that we jump to. It means I have something to learn. And if we're not learning, then what the heck are we doing here, regardless of our background? But in this particular fight, in the work for justice, in the work of advocacy, white people have some catching up to do, to say the very least. That's, that's so poignant and so good. Because it is one of those things, especially for we here on this call, who are constantly dealing with people who have a set perspective of what is and what isn't, and are unwilling to step from that place and consider the possibility that they're wrong. And then when you start showing them the receipts, they they shut down, you know, they get triggered. And then it's just like the, it, the, the ability to connect to them is just lost because they don't know how to breathe through the discomfort and accept, wow, that just blew my mind. It shattered my reality. And rather than just be like, well, fuck you. I don't want to hear from you anymore. You know what? Okay. That, that was a punch in the gut, but I'm okay. I've recovered. Tell me more. Now I'm going to shut the fuck up and listen to you because now I recognize that maybe I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe I don't have all the answers. Maybe I've been sucking from a fire hose of misinformation. And this person is actually giving me good information and it feels uncomfortable because somewhere deep in me, I guess they're right. I guess I could have been wrong and I'm okay with that. How do people learn to be okay with being wrong and not feeling like they have to lash out because they've been told that they're wrong because they're being wrong is so apparent to them. How do they do that? So I love the fact that your, your book is going to give them practical tips to, you know, be wrong and be okay with being wrong. And I think that 
I can say this. I can attest to this. Jamie's been an ally in spaces where I'm like, what is happening? And, and stepped into those moments and been like, I'm going to show up in, in like this way. And so I, it's not just, you're not just talking like you live it, right? Like I trust you in that way. And so there were moments on Facebook where I think I side messaged Jamie and I was like, what is happening with this person? And Jamie was like, I know I'm trying to fix it. And I was like, what? It was just so eye-opening to me. And also because you want you, I, I think as a person, as a, as a mom of color, who's navigating this and my, my child and I always talk about, um, you know, colorism is also another facet of this. And especially in Latinx communities and Daniel is obviously like five shades lighter than me. And so has a different experience. And we talk about the privilege and he's masculine, right? Like there's all these points of power. And so it's been really important in our journey that we have those conversations too. Like, it's not just a white people problem, right? Like we're talking about systems of power that were built in a very specific way. And we all come into power and privilege in different, in different instances. And like being able to navigate those with, with empathy for yourself and also with the, um, with uh, accountability to the person that you've harmed. And so I think, uh, Jamie, I think you're like a wonderful like spokesperson on that because you do step into those moments of discomfort, like with like a smile and like, I know it's uncomfortable, I'm here for you. Like kind of like I'm here, I'm gonna do it. And so I just always value that about you. That's why I asked the question because I know you're like living in that too. Well, thank you. And I do want to name, like, I still get it wrong, like on the regular, like I'm always like, and so I, I so appreciate your words. And that means so much because that's what I'm trying to do. And I also have people like you and other friends in my life who are going to let me know when I have missed the mark, when I have said, I mean, I write it in the book. Like I, I mean, here's like a really small example. And I it was like a huge white people moment, but I, was writing the book and at some point and like I was about to turn it in like we were towards the end and I was reading something and I realized that I had substituted or used um as the same society and culture I used them interchangeably because for me they are and I had this moment like I like I broke down in a Panera bread <laughs> because I'm typing and I'm like oh my gosh, what have I done? Like, I can, I have to go through the entire thing and fix this. Like, how could I be so like, cause I know better, but in the course of just writing. And so like, I share that that happened in the book, even though I've gone back and fixed it because we're still gonna mess up. Like we are trying to undo programming that is so deep in our bones. Like this is the air we've breathed, the waters we've swam in, whatever metaphor you want to use, it is everything. And so it takes that regular awareness and people who are willing, if I didn't catch it, I know somebody, I know one of my readers would have been like, yo, what are you doing here? And I've been like, and so I'm glad that I am at a point where sometimes I can catch it myself, that's the goal. But otherwise I have people that trust me enough and I think, know now that I will take their feedback seriously and do something about it that they'll tell me. And that means a lot. That's, that's growth. And it's so funny because like you will always have a special place in my heart because from the moment I met you until now, you have been this like lovely, giving, selfless, open, honest, willing to learn introspective individual that is a rare thing in white people it really is it's just not something and a white woman on top because like real talk like white fragility and white women tears is some real shit and and Lisette and I have both experienced people who purport to be allies just straight tripping where we have to be like is this woman really out here talking greasy out the side of her neck and and at the same time I recognize, like, I've learned from you. Like, I don't even know if you remember this, but it was around Time to Thrive um, and we had gone out to eat and something about sports came up and I was still very much in my cishet misogynistic space, even though my child had come out and I was here trying to rep. And I was talking about trans women in sports, trans girls in sports. And I was just spitting the, the, the old, party lines of ignorance and you were like yeah no 
that that's what you're saying is, is is inaccurate and it's not right. And you were very level. You weren't like blowing up. You weren't telling me to kiss your ass. You weren't cussing me out. You weren't like beating me upside the head with facts and figures. You were just like, yeah, well, no, whatever, whatever. And, you know, we're not going to talk about this. And I don't, I don't remember how it ended, but I, I clearly got that. Maybe I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. So maybe I'm going to stop here. And the way you did it, though, that's that's what I'm talking about. The way you did it was super respectful. It was super, he doesn't know what he's saying. And so I'm not going to allow this conversation to go down a rabbit hole where it can go. A, a, a cishet male talking to a white woman about sports, like it can go blackmail. Sorry, six for three, blackmail with tattoos. It could go so different. You just met me. And yet, and still, you treated me with such compassion and love and understanding. And I eventually have arrived at the place that you were trying to lead me when we first spoke, but you didn't have to use a heavy hand. In fact, we never had a conversation about it afterwards, but the way you said what you said and the, the information that you retorted to me led me down a path that I probably wouldn't have gone back, gone down. Had we had like a drag out brawl where I was trying to convince you of the, and that's the approach that I've taken now when I get to somebody that I care about, like you didn't know me, but you cared enough because of where I was and how we met and the connection I had with your daughter to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to let him, I'm going to treat him with grace so that we can continue and he can develop in his space because he just got here. He don't know. And it's that kind of thing that you're employing with yourself. You're like, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to demonstrate great to myself because, you know, I don't know. I've made a mistake and I'm willing to learn and do better. And I just, I really do like you, you will always hold a special place in my heart because of that. Well, thank you for sharing that. I love that. So I have another question for you. I was reading one of your posts, um, blog posts on your website, a letter to my transgender daughter, where you basically talked about how you were in awe of this little person, I think it was the five-year anniversary of her coming out as her authentic self to the world. When you reflect on who Rebecca is today, how have your feelings changed about her and the journey she's on? Mm. So I go, when I talk about Rebecca, I find myself pulled in two different directions. Like, I mean, I still can't get the kid to clean her room. She's a typical teenager in all the ways. She's sassy as they come. Um, and I don't want to put her on some sort of pedestal. Like she's a real human being with all the rough spots and everything else. But um, I mean, Rebecca has taught me really from the time she was born, we joke that she came out of the womb demanding her voice be heard or nobody was gonna sleep again. Like we had to throw out all the parenting books and follow her lead or else this was just not gonna work. And that like paved the way, like she knew from that moment, that's what she needed to do to whip us into shape. Um, but she has taught me and so many others what it means to truly love the person in front of you for who they are, not who you thought they were, who you expected them to be, who you wanted them to be for who they are. And that has been so powerful. And I think the other thing is that it, she has shown that when you show up fully as yourself, you make space for other people, all kinds of people to do the same. And that makes the world a better place. And so, I mean, it was only in my journey with her that I, you know, came out as queer eventually. I mean, I did think everybody was bisexual. It was a little bit of a shock to figure out that y'all aren't, I don't understand, <laughs> but, um, and, and like, just continue to break down the boxes that I feel shoved into so that I can lead a more authentic life. And she does that for everyone around her and she does it with humor and she does it with snark and sass and sometimes grace and, um, she really does just make the world a better place. But if we could work on that room, that'd be really great. My final question for you is, what do you do to take care of yourself in this moment? I am not doing so well on that front. To be very honest, this year has been rough. Um, I have recently started taking a lot of walks. Like if I'm having a conversation and I, I need information or at the meeting or whatever, if I don't have to be at my computer to do it, I just like somebody calls me, I slip my shoes on and I just take laps around my block and somehow just getting outside, being even like in suburbia, being around trees and people and community like that has been really huge. I think that has gotten me through a lot. Um, 
for me, nature is huge. Like I, I need to go to the trees and the water. And so I just got back from a short trip to Oregon where I was consulting with a camp on inclusion stuff, but I got to go see the Oregon coast for the first time. And so like my, my spouse had to like literally pull me from the water's edge because I was like, no, here, here suddenly everything feels like it's going to be okay. Like I need that in my soul. I jumped in a waterfall fully clothed because I was like, I just need to be in the water. And so like finding those little bits, I can't do that on a daily basis. I can't jump in a random waterfall, but um, finding those ways that ground me, um, walking barefoot in the grass in my backyard, spending time with my people, um, spending time with my kids that isn't advocacy oriented at all. Like that is so important for relationships and drinking a lot of water. If I don't drink a lot of water, like suddenly I can be like having the worst day and be so cranky. And I'm like, what's going on? Everything's awful. If I just like drink a pint of water. I'm like, oh, okay. Apparently I was dehydrated. So like little things, little things are saving me right now. You know what's so funny? You said, and drinking. And then there was a pause. I was like, girl, you and me both. Cause sometimes a, a good stiff drink will get you. And then you said a lot of water. I was like, oh, right. Yeah, me too. You get hydration, hydration, you know, cause you know, you want to, you want to hydrate. Alcohol is not good. <laughs> so my I mean, gin looks like water. They're very similar. Clear. Right? My assistant Marcel is like always, we're always joking. Cause their mom is like, are you, do you, you, you tired? did you drink some water? Like, that's always the response. Do you have a headache? Did you hydrate? Like, it's literally so we're, whenever we're kind of cranky, we joke around and tell each other, did you drink enough water? <laughs> oh my God. So Jamie, it has been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Like I haven't seen you in years. We were at the White House and we missed each other. So I'm sad, but I'm happy that you were able to join us today. I really appreciate the conversation we've had. I am so looking forward to the book, which I have pre-ordered. And if you want to just send your brother, you know, a signed copy already, knowing that I pre-ordered one and I'll give that one, I'll pay, pay it forward. I will absolutely have to get it signed by you and Rebecca, Holla, and Lisette too, because apparently she's in the book. But thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. And you know, love you. Now it's time for our recurring segment, Allies and Assholes, where we highlight individuals or groups that are supporting the LGBTQIA community on the one hand and call out straight up assholes who are trying to move us all backwards on the other. Lisette, who are we talking about today? Our ally of the week is Nikki Hiltz. <laughs> Nikki Hiltz is a transgender non-binary athlete who took first place in the women's 1500 meter race at the 2003 USATF championships last Saturday. Now people in New Jersey are probably a little salty that they won, not because they're a transgender athlete, but because they beat our hometown hero, a thing move by like two tenths of a second. And Steven Hiltz dedicated their victory to the LGBTQ community, specifically the transgender community saying, I think there's so much hate right now and specifically the bills being passed for trans youth. I feel like the LGBTQ community needed a win and there's so many things that go through your mind in a race. And for whatever reason, that was kind of in the back of my mind. Like Megan Rapino, Brittany Griner, and other athletes who've come out in support of inclusion of trans athletes, Hilts use their visibility and their victory as a platform to advocate for trans youth. And this is why Nikki Hills is our ally of the week. All right, congratulations to Nikki. Now on to our asshole of the week. Our asshole of the week is a joint award to the Sixth Circuit majority of Chief Judge Jeffrey Sutton and Judge Amul Tapar. These two bastions of legal thinking allowed a state ban on gender affirming care for transgender minors in Tennessee to go into effect. The decision lifts an injunction issued by a lower court blocking enforcement of the Tennessee law banning gender affirming care. Now, the Sixth Circuit is the first federal court to allow a ban on gender affirming care to take effect after the courts unanimously blocked such bans in Arkansas, Florida, Indiana, and Kentucky. In fact, last month, 
a federal court in Arkansas struck down that state's ban on gender-affirming care in the first ruling on the merits of such a law, finding that it violated the Equal Protection Clause, the Due Process Clauses, and the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. As I mentioned earlier, this is devastating. The Sixth Circuit cited the Dobbs decision, which overturned Roe versus Wade decision as the reasoning for staying the lower court's ruling. It's important for people to understand that this was always the plan when it comes to the Dobbs ruling. Not only does it strip women and trans people of bodily autonomy, it further creates precedent that state that protections of privacy and the right to make private medical decisions for oneself is a right only reserved for a few. That's why the Sixth Circuit majority is our asshole of the Well, that's our show for today, folks. I want to thank today's guest, Jamie Brisehoff, for spending time with us today. And of course, I like to thank my always amazing in the house partner in crime, Lisette Trujillo, for joining me. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. I love sharing this space with you. And thank you, Jamie, for joining us today. And of course, we couldn't do this without all of you, our listeners. So thanks for tuning in to the Parent Advocate Podcast. And as usual, please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, and do all the things to stay up to date with everything we're doing here on the Parent Advocate Podcast. Bye! Bye! If you are thinking about harming yourself, get immediate support. Please reach out to The Trevor Project and connect to a crisis counselor 24-7, 365 days a year from anywhere in the United States. It's 100% confidential and 100% free. You can get help at thetrevorproject.org. If you'd like to support any of the organizations working actively to support LGBTQ people, please visit the ACLU at action.aclu.org or the Human Rights Campaign at hrc.org. You've been listening to the Parent Advocate Podcast. Tune in again for another episode.